0: You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My unusually well-informed guest today is Dr. George Zhu. George is a professor at the Lausanne School of Engineering at York University. He is also a research chair in space technology and director of the Space Engineering Design Laboratory. George has published over 300 journal and conference papers and is internationally acknowledged as a leader in astronautics, spacecraft dynamics and control, and space debris mitigation. Today, George and I are going to discuss his research projects and the exciting possibilities they create. George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, with you in the show I'm excited about uh, sharing my uh, story about the space anything about the space
0: thank you it's my pleasure so let me begin with the descent project which I understand is deorbiting spacecraft with electrodynamic tethers how does that work
1: Oh descent uh, represents it's a a long word we call the Deorbit space debris using electrodynamic tether. So uh, before we start, I just give you uh, uh, some little background about electrodynamic tether. So electrodynamic tether is a very long thing, uh, conductive electrically conductive tether in the space. So when it uh, moving along, uh, orbiting in the Earth's orbit, it will cut the Magnetic uh, field, or we call the mag- magnetic line of the Earth's magnetic field, and because of uh, the Lorentz law, uh, that Lorentz force will push the uh, free electrons in the metal tether, and then make it charge. It, it just push electron to one end, and the ions to the other end, and so if you uh, add a uh, electro image at the one end that collects all the electrons uh, pushed by those Lorentz force and you push it back into the uh, Earth's uh, like the ambient. It's not the true uh, vacuum, because in the low Earth orbit, there's a lot of uh, plasma. So it, it's like a, you submerge into a, a sea of plasma. There's a uh, lot of uh, free uh, electrons, so you shoot the electron back into that plasma, and then form the current within your uh, electrical wires. Then you know that, uh, the like electric motor, right? You have the conductive wires moving in the electric field, uh, magnetic field. It will generate a force against your motion. So that's how it works. So, but until now, this concept, it's only in the drawing board. People think, oh, we can use that, we call it electrical drag to push the space debris down to the Earth, right? Because it's you add the drag against its motion uh, to accelerate its uh, de process, but it has never been tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our mission is about to demonstrate this concept and it, it actually works. So the descent mission is built uh, with a full, sorry, it's with a two cube set. Each cube set is a ten by ten by ten centimeters, and uh, then we stored one hundred meter tether. It's a very thin aluminum uh, coil, right inside the one cube set, and uh, the two cube set was tied together before launch. And once it's shoot into the orbit, then once it's established communication with the Earth uh, station, Earth ground station, we will send a command to separate that to satellite. And then we can demonstrate the theory. So, so far uh, we have launched that CubeSat into orbit. I think in, in the November 5th, 2020. Okay. And uh, now we operate that CubeSat for almost 10 months. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, We did a bunch of the tests and uh, we tried to deploy the the Tether, but it it is always the tough part to separate the two satellites and deploy the Tether.
0: Yes. If
1: you look into the history of the Tether satellite or well, 60% of the mission failed to deploy the tether. And that bad luck happened to ours, our mission. I see. So yeah, we we won't be able to separate.
0: Let me let me follow up on a couple of the concepts there. So um, the the earth has a magnetic field, I understand is because there's a, there's a molten iron core that's rotating relative to the earth. Because the Earth is rotating around it, yeah, and that generates an electric field, as you say, like a motor, and then the wire itself interacts with that. And there's a, there's a couple of concepts I want to explore. One is um, okay. So in the in the descent project, you had two very similar cubesats that, uh, intended to be at either end.
1: Yeah,
0: and the drag that's produced by the magnet, the magnetic field, interacting with the wire is going to be somewhat equal on the whole length of the wire. No, not true. No, not true. It depends. There's a two types of, uh, electrodynamic
1: tether system. Okay. One is you, you have the insulate electrical wire tether then your electron uh, collectors or emitters on both ends. So you have the constant current generated along the tether. So then in that case, the Lorentz force, we call electric uh, drag, is equal along the tether. Okay. There's another concept. Uh, It's they use the we call the bare tether. So, So means the tether is not electrically insulated. Mm-hmm. So the tether itself, it was served as a electron connector because uh, when you're moving along, uh, the magnetic field will push the electron negative charge to the lower end. So yes. if you manage it to uh, control the potential bias at the lower end, then the whole tether will be positively biased relative to the environment plasma. So that tether itself becomes electron attractor. So in that case, at the very top, it attract a little bit electrons. At the very bottom, it's attracted because it accumulated along the tether, it attract a lot of electrons. So the uh, electric uh, current it's going from zero to the maximum at the bottom. So the force is not equally distributed around the tether.
0: So um, I will confess, I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer. My, my electrical stuff is, is pretty weak, um, but are, are you, is the wire interacting or are you collecting the electrons and intending to emit them in a way that generates force?
1: Yeah, the wire is moving. So when the moving, it cut the magnetic field and then it generates a bias. So in the second uh, approach, we, we save one electron contact by, let, by using the positive bias, the tether, as an electron collector. Because it's a positive bias, it will attract the three electrons from environmental plasma. Mm. to the tether. Then at the bottom, because once the electrons touch the tether or get very close to the tether, it will be attracted by those uh, lo- uh, Coulomb's law and go to the tether. And then the Lorentz the force, because of the motion of the tether, will push that electron tether down to the bottom. Then we have the uh, electron collector collect and shoot it back into the Uh, atmosphere.
0: So a follow-up question on that then is uh, would it only work in low Earth orbit? Like if we get further away from the Earth, we are still in the magnetic field, but there's less plasma to use? Yes,
1: Yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, The plasma density uh, drops as the altitude increased. So the plasma density, according to our current knowledge, uh, peaked at about the 400 kilometers mm-hmm. above the uh, ground. Then, if you reach to the 1,000 kilogram, of uh, uh, kilometers or the 1,200 kilometers, then the uh, the electron density is almost zero. So that's the uh, that's up limit. Usually, it's only say,
0: useful close to the close to the atmosphere. So. Yeah. Let's talk about some possibilities as far as practical use of this. Um, one is to deorbit, as we, as you spoke about earlier, it's deorbiting debris. Why yeah. is orbital debris a problem? Yeah, the orbital debris,
1: because you imagine orbital debris is moving on the orbit, right, at a very high speed. So if the two pieces moving relative in this way. And uh, their speed were up to 15 kilometers per second because mm. the first, uh, 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 what you call the, the speed to escape the Earth's uh, gravity is 7.9 kilometers right per second. So so if you have a lot of those debris there, so it will have the potential to hit uh, the other satellite or other debris. So, give you some statistics uh since uh, the first satellite into the orbit in fifties. Uh, now we have uh, uh, the the u s constantly monitor that. so we have about thirty thousand pieces of debris which is larger than ten centimeters mm. right. and the, big. Be, yeah and big, and between the ten centimeter to five centimeters. There's another probably uh, uh, 20,000. Anything below five centimeters is non-traceable now. So Mm -hmm. so the estimate number will be around the half million to million. So the chance to be hit by debris is very high.
0: Yeah. And the, the smaller pieces, of course, are not complete satellites. These are, you could think of them as accidental fragments Of failed missions or or things that are disposed of during you know like let's say you have stage separation you have explosive bolts that kind of thing yeah um and
1: even paint
0: even the paint yeah yeah you wouldn't want to get hit by a paint chip at 15 kilometers per second you don't want no um, well then, how how in your imagination as you look forward to this technology of using the Lorentz force to slow down debris and, and burn it up into the atmosphere? How would a tethered system attach to that debris? You'd have to have some sort of robotic.
1: Yeah, that's mechanism. a two. There's a two ways. One is uh, it's the current that I work is a design standalone system that can be attached to a new satellite. Mm. So when they reach the end of the mission stage, they just deploy that yeah. and they will pull it back. Like, like throwing an anchor out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anchor to the sick atom sphere, right? Like yes. you can imagine this way. The, the second way is you are right. So we have to use the, uh, we call it space robotic to capture uh, debris or dead or satellite then attach that device to that uh, object and then deploy
0: mm-hmm.
1: the, the tether then you can uh, I can decelerate or oh, sorry uh, the deorbit this uh, debris
0: and that would be an extremely uh slow process to to deal with millions of bits of hardware in and yes, space
1: yes yes um so economically uh, people looking that way. People, I uh, think the NASA scientists did the simulation 10 years ago. Say, uh, in order to address the space debris issue, the first thing, let's stop the increasing trend. In order to do that, every year we only need to remove five big pieces, mm. say the, several tons of right. the large debris. Then we can stop the increased rate because the large piece were kind of uh, defragment the impact with mm-hmm. another debris were generate um, more debris
0: yeah there's a is that called the Kessler syndrome, syndrome? Or it, what do you call it Kessler syndrome Kessler yep. and and the yep. idea is that one one object blowing up can it's almost like nuclear fission right you've got debris everywhere in orbit and yeah, a chain it, reaction' it's like a chain, cascade chain reaction, yeah, terrible. Let me ask you if um, you know when we're in when we're in orbit, we have solar power, we have a lot of electricity at our disposal, can we use a tether to accelerate to a higher or pre- preferred orbit somehow? Can we use the force can we interact with the tether and the magnetism to go higher?
1: yes theoretically it is possible because the the way i'm talking about it before we call the uh, generating mode so basically we convert kinetic energy of the debris or satellite into electricity and the heat dissipated so as a cost, because the energy is conserved so we would convert kinetic energy into heat dissipated so you lose the uh, orbital height. On the other way, so we need to import energy mm-hmm. into that system. So we basically put a, uh, a power source. The power can come from uh, sun or come from nuclear reactor. And then we reverse the current. So if we say we current go this way, we generate the Lorentz force is against motion. So imagine if we reverse, we put the Uh, another high uh, voltage powers Mm -hmm. to reverse the electricity directions, then the Lorentz force is in line with the motion. In that way, you can actually uh, boost your uh, orbit. So interesting you mentioned that one. The electrodynamic tether was first uh, developed to uh, boost the orbit of
0: the International Space Station. Mm. instead of uh, you, you burned a few. So that was what it was, co- what, it, what it was, um, the, that th- there was a theory they could use it or did they use it for that uh, use? It, yeah. This
1: technology was originally developed for that purpose. It's okay. in, uh, a, a 1980s mm-hmm. and then uh, NASA did, uh, two large scale electrodynamic tether mission. That's a 20 kilometers tether, uh, in 1993. And unfortunately, two missions, both were failed. Hmm. One was failed to deploy the tether. (laughs) The other one deployed the 20 kilometers of tether and the tether was cut by an electrical arc.
0: Uh, Oh, yes, I can imagine. Because they're
1: highly charged the tether and the space shuttle is a metal uh, ground and you have a conductive medium with a plasma. So because of that, as I NASA think this technology is high risk. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: What, um, if it did work, can it only accelerate me on my current path or can I have an arbitrary control over which direction I accelerate?
1: Yes, you can, uh, because you control the current density, right? You regulate the current, then you can control the force.
0: The force, but not the direction, or can I control the direction? Direction, no, no, no. Okay, so I can control how much I go, but I can't control, okay. And also,
1: just to let you know, for um, satellite maneuvering in the space, we usually maneuver the satellite within the orbital plane, mm -hmm. because based on the orbital dynamics, if you want to maneuver the satellite from one orbital plane, to another orbital plane, it costs too much. It requires huge energy. So you'd better off maybe launch a new satellite to a new orbital plane, it it costs less.
0: Well, I was wondering about that because you have these huge constellations now like Tesla, or sorry, SpaceX is launching Yeah.
1: um, uh, Sky. yeah.
0: Starlink, Starlink. Yes. And they have 60 satellites, in, or I think it's 60 or 80 satellites in one launch. They have to diverge a little bit uh, yeah. over time, they, right?
1: Yeah, but they are all within a one orbital plane. I see. So the orbital height may change because of the drag, mm-hmm. but they, they will stick in that plane. They I won't
0: see. go to other plane. Okay. So uh, you mentioned that the descent... Uh, experiment was a CubeSat. Can we talk a little bit about CubeSats? What are CubeSats and what are the advantages of CubeSats?
1: Yeah, the CubeSat concept was first uh, developed by uh, as it did, the University of California in, I believe, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, they want to cut the cost. In the past, the, the cost for satellite is so high because everything's customer made and the high cost. The so they say, okay, let's divide uh, the rapid standard. The cube set means one cube, One they have the unit, one U, they call it one cube. It's a 10 centimeter cube. So if you have you know, two U, we call it two U, you stack up them together. So they standardize that design and then uh, everybody, so they can have a uh, Different companies specialize on one components, but following that stand. So that created a way for university students to be able to build and launch the satellite. So that is it's an economical way. So originally it's designed for education only, mm. but now the big company like Lockheed Martin, those NASA, they see that commercial value of that so, so more and more they use the cube set as a test platform to demonstrate some new device
0: and the advantage of course is that if if you have a standard form factor then you it's almost like Tetris you can pack a lot of satellites into one nose cone yes and, and you know that really you just need to worry about the weight and 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 the, and the, the size. Volume. yeah yeah um how are they deployed there must be a variety of ways they're deployed
1: there's a lot of way to deploy one way is for the big launch satellite you know for the rocket they, at the end they always need some better weight to make sure the cg is in the ideal position so to do that they will put some uh, balanced weight around the rocket so those big uh, companies, they sell those space <laughs> to CubeSat <laughs> or even the small uh, NanoSat. And this is a one way. And yeah. uh, and now there's a special uh, company just for CubeSat. So they designed a rocket that can launch probably 20, 100 CubeSat. Uh, India is very successful at have launched with this uh, launch vehicle, it's a commercial model. The other way is you have the standard port. Everybody put your CubeSat into a standard port, and then you ship the CubeSat with the port, and then the port they put in the rocket, launch it, or you send your port into the International Space Station. And from there, the astronauts activate the Deployment. So for our descent mission, uh, we we use the, the last option.
0: And um, the company you're referring to is that NanoRacks.
1: Yes, it's a NanoRack. They signed a contract with the NASA to uh, mainly service to the education institution university. I see to provide those service.
0: One of the exciting things is, you know, when we when we look at satellites being built, at least in the older videos and older pictures, you know, it's people with white uh, hats and white gloves and it's, you know, in a a very clean facility and everything. It's very it's very um, sort of particular. It's 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 expensive but a CubeSat, you can make it out of off-the-shelf components. You can use bits and pieces from a phone. You can use a Raspberry Pi. How was the Descent module put together? Where did you get the parts for that?
1: We ordered, we have a two cube,
0: So we did uh, some experiment,
1: as you mentioned. For one cube, it's mostly important. And uh, we bought the components from this company, they have a space heritage, means the similar product has been tested in the space. So mm. those components uh, had very high reliability. Right. But the cost is huge. Yes. And the, the, the other cube, we use the commercial of oh. the share yeah, of components uh, like a Raspberry Pi. Basically we use a Raspberry Pi as an onboard computer. <laughs> I give you the comparison the raspberry pi cost 30 to 50 us dollars yes and and it's much powerful and onboard computer with bought cost us nine thousand us dollars wow yeah but we paid the price we learned that it's a reliability issue because mm-hmm. uh, uh, robustness we launched that two cube in the space and the, the only one works the one with $9,000 on board the computer works. You the get what you pay one, for, yeah. The other with the Raspberry Pi uh, didn't work, even with the two Raspberry Pi. So they have some redundancy, Yeah. none of them.
0: Oh works. no, that's terrible. <laughs> um, so when you're on a nano, when, when you are launched among other Cube satellites, uh, the way you described it, you were going to this international space station. So everybody's going yeah. to the same place, but I imagine sometimes there are, uh, they're launched freely into space, mm-hmm. but then again, they would all be in the same plane, the same orbit, right? Yeah. yeah. So they just sort of drift apart far enough to, to to be working separately. Right, right. And that's the disadvantage of being along for the ride. You don't get to pick your exact orbit.
1: No, that's actually this industry it's highly regulated before you launch. And you, you have a lot of regulation regulator, which orbit you can, you can mm. launch. And uh, you have check with, within the, the orbit, you have check all the other uh, satellite owners, they are already in there. Mm. And if there is a, a physical uh, impact potential or risk, and also more importantly, it's a radio, uh, interference
0: oh, so yeah, of course
1: you cannot operate satellite communication without a license
0: that's interesting because uh, um, are there international bodies that regulate that yes
1: it's yeah. an international body and uh, each country has their organization this organization is in canada it's run by the government i see so it's harder regulated and the uh, you probably know that. I don't know if you know that I, I didn't know before, because my students want to put a webcam on the satellite just for fun, we just mm-hmm. look down and take images. And it turns out, we need to get a license from the Global Affair Canada.
0: Because hmm. I, I guess there's uh, espionage concerns. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Um, let me switch gears a little bit. Um, I, I was thinking to myself that your work has a, a thread running through it, uh, cause everything's to do with tethers and, 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 uh, fibers. Uh, yeah. I want to go to another fiber. I'll weave another topic in. And that is, um, the, the research you're doing into using a tethered space tug to redirect asteroids. Can you talk about what that would look like?
1: Yeah, that is the uh, second technology. We we are working. We assume you catch the uh, debris with a robot, and then you 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 have to process. You either just pour it and and use the fi- uh, rocket that you have and go down to the space. But there is a risk if you have a robot grab that. Big chunk of debris or dead satellite, and that dead satellite is kind of uh, tumbling while it's uncontrolled. So you have to moving around. That's uh, that poses a safety concern to the we call the chaser satellite. Uh, so one way to address that is we have a small satellite like uh, deployed from the mother satellite with a little tether, like an anchor. You have then capture the debris and with a distance, safe distance away, with a soft tether link. So no matter the big one is, the big that satellite is tumbling, mm-hmm. I'm still away, I'm safe. <laughs> then once I capture that satellite, I using the control, the force, like uh, we you do the fishing, right? When you catch a fish, we, we pull the string to control the motion of the fish in the water, the similar way we do that so to uh, de-spin the satellite first and then we pour the satellite uh, into the position we want.
0: So let me let me see if I can echo that because I'm not quite visualizing it. So if I'm, if I'm in a, I, I'm not in it, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in control of a larger satellite yeah. and I deploy on a tether a robot that can grab the asteroid. So i'm still connected through the tether but the asteroid could be spinning yes and so first of all the robot i i we have to assume it's not spinning too quickly or the robot can never catch it so it's got to be a decent speed so it catches it but what's how do you prevent it from winding around the asteroid so uh it depends on how
1: fast uh your mother ship can respond to the motion if you cannot respond very fast. So one way is we let this mother ship uh, synchronize your motion with the target. So we spin at the same rate.
0: Mm, okay, so you would come to its North Pole or South Pole? Yeah. And then you would detach, and, and then the tether would just twist, it wouldn't whip around?
1: Japan uh, usually would not. Usually it's, it's spin, we just uh, spin together. It's like uh, we are in the equator orbit. Ah, we're okay. moving with the, t- like uh, the stage or uh, stationary satellite, right? Okay. We, we're moving around. And then we deploy the tether and with the robot hand grab that uh, astronaut or maybe the harpoon goes into that capture. Okay. And then I try to slow down on my mothership, ship and apply the force to the spinning asteroid and use that way to slow down the mission, uh, the spinning and then we can pull it away.
0: Okay. And that, and that, um, you know, in, in, when I think about it, I think it's almost like um, trailer control, you know, the sometimes the trailer can start whipping around, but of course you have a huge advantage on the earth, which is friction you have tires yes. against the road and right. eventually things will calm down you must be using uh very well timed bursts of thrust to yes. counteract the rotation
1: yes yes
0: i see okay so and then the goal of this would be to what mine asteroids or prevent asteroids from hitting the earth what are you hoping to do with this technology
1: um uh, the currently it, it's we want to do the space mining. Okay. Yeah. Get okay. the space resource, and that one probably can relate to the next subject we're going to talk: the 3D printing in space. Okay. So that, yeah. That yeah. you get you you get your materials from there.
0: Uh, oh, okay. Interesting. Yes. That that so so I assume then that you're um, going to leave the asteroids that are coming to earth that will destroy earth you're going to let bruce willis blow them up with a nuclear weapon is that a better yeah. plan that is not i'm not thinking about that for me it's
1: uh, too big to stop because currently we won't be able to kind of do that and no. NASA, they have a scientist that, um they have the they have this um, a proposal i don't know if you have read it on the web they think they have a big, huge net. where deploy the net, mm-hmm. then they can capture the huge astronaut and then pull it away.
0: And then pull it away. So you would rely on on thrust to yeah. redirect it. Redirect. Yeah.
1: But imagine uh, if there's a thrust big enough can thrust the Earth, and how much, how big the energy you need.
0: Absolutely. Well, yeah. you. I think the secret there is to see it early enough, right? So you don't have to have, you don't have to deflect it too much. Yeah. 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 Um, So before we start talking about how we're going to convert these asteroids into 3d materials, um, let me, let me ask you some, so again, this is another thread. This is another kind of technology and it is carbon nanotubes. You've done research into carbon nanotubes in polymer um, and you, you're taking advantage of a few properties there. One is that it has great tensile strength, but also that it conducts electricity. What are the interesting things you can do as a result of that?
1: Oh, that's a lot of things you can do, and uh, this project actually uh, was funded by the Canadian Space Agency. They, they want kind of uh, uh, technology exploration. So one way uh, for the spacecraft is uh, to improve its efficiency, it reduce its weight. Like mm-hmm. right? because you you're probably ninety eight percent if you launch one piece from Earth to space, ninety eight percent of the weight are the fuels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can reduce the weight, you, it's a big advantage.
0: Yeah.
1: So one way to do that is make the material multifunctional. So one material can do multiple things. So carbon nanotube uh, provide advantage of this. So I know that for the outside of the spacecraft is still the metal, right? Because you have a lot of the space environment, um, this uh, oxygen, corrosion, this thing. So metal is still the better way to do that. But inside the metal, you you, sometimes you use some uh, shielding material and uh, those non-metal things. And if you as a part of structure, secondary structure. So if we can make that material multifunction uh, that can save the weight. So for our project, uh, our target is make a one super material. It is structurally strong. Uh, It can uh, shield electromagnetic wave Mm -hmm. to prevent interaction and uh, you can shield the secondary radiation to protect the health of the astronaut inside the spaceship. Mm-hmm. And then it can uh, electric it. So it can uh, use as a sensor. So the material itself can self-monitor its uh, structure integrity. If something correct, you can you can detect from the uh, change of the resistance right? right and also for the heat conduction so you avoid the for those supporting material because mm. it's a heat insulator the problem you heat it one end is very hot the other mm. end is still cool so if you make it uh thermal conductive it can dissipate heat even
0: oh, I hadn't thought of that I, I... You're right. So carbon. So let's back up a little bit and talk about this. So most people are familiar with fiberglass, right? Fiberglass is just glass fibers in a resin. When you, when the resin dries, it becomes quite hard, but also you can't pull it apart because of glass fibers. So this is just a a more, uh, a more high-tech version of that. The carbon nanotubes. What, what is, what is the definition of a carbon nanotube?
1: Yeah. Carbon nanotube is it's just formed by carbon itself, the carbon molecules, right? The carbon molecules is that six side, right? The shape. And uh, you make the tube, that's very small. The diameter is about one nanometers, but for the lens, you can several hundred or thousands of nanometers, and even longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the advantage is we use this small material because this carbon nanotube, it is very strong mm-hmm. around the, the, its length direction, right? And uh, also it has a very high ratio of surface to its dimension. So that means oh. providing it's a, a good opportunity to to bond with other materials.
0: Right, interesting, so, okay.
1: Yeah, but for that, uh, Advanced material uh, for the spacecraft, we don't use a fiberglass because too heavy. Right. We use a fiber, uh, carbon fiber. It's very light.
0: Okay.
1: So carbon fiber is, is it's big. So the carbon fiber, we use it to layer by layer bond it together. But those kind of material has a fatal problem. If you just hit like this on the surface, you don't see anything, but inside, there is, must be mm-hmm. some crack between mm-hmm. the layers, like a debounding. Right. So the bounding strength between the layers is critical to increase the bounding stress. So we put that small uh, carbon fiber, a very small amount. You're talking about uh, 2% to 3% in terms of weight percentage right. around this uh, surface, the, before we bond them together, we put them around the surface, spray them on the surface of the fiber, and we bond them together. In that way, we increase their peeling, shearing, and the bonding strength by 30 to 50%. Hmm.
0: It's
1: very effective.
0: And you have the advantage that if you run a current through it, you can see it flex, and you can yes. see if its characteristics are changing over time.
1: Yeah. Although the carbon fiber is conductive, But because you put the resin between, so there's no conductive between the layers. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. we put the uh, carbon nanotube there, we make the resin itself is conductive, electrical and uh, thermally conductive. So then we can create the the passage for electricity and the heat between the uh, fibers.
0: Fascinating, and okay, so, you, you mentioned earlier that it provides some shielding. Is it sort of like a yeah. Faraday cage, like the, the wire mesh on a microwave door? That stops yes. the, the yes. Radiation, Stop from-
1: radiation, but they have the different, uh, uh, mechanism for the radiation shielding compared with the metal. Okay. For the metal it's mainly the bounce back. You have incoming wave, it bounce back. Okay. Right. And for those material. It's not It's mostly through the absorption. I see. For each, so you have to say a lot of layers within the sheet material, and the the wave coming because the uh, uh, plasma is transparent to the electromagnetic wave. Right. It's come in, then you hit these carbon layers, and it bounces back between the different layers and between okay. the uh, carbon nanotubes. So. So this is this is
0: fascinating because um, you d- I just realized you know one of the things that spacecraft often do is they'll go like into rotisserie mode, right? So that yeah. the sun is hitting them evenly and they don't they don't wind up with stresses from that. But if you had carbon nanotubes in your construction, that would reduce the heat stress, wouldn't it? Because it would conduct it around the body of the vehicle. Yeah, yeah, it helps. So yeah. um, the Two two follow-up questions. One is, uh, does it help with lightning strikes? Uh, it
1: helps, but not a lot because the the carbon nanotube, there, the conductivity is several orders smaller I than the metal.
0: Okay, so it causes a lot of heat. Okay. It, it's
1: the capacity. It's not as good as metal. Okay.
0: And then the other question is, is this possibly... Uh, a good technology for um, stealth aircraft or stealth vehicles? Because it, yes. it, would it absorb radar, I guess is what I'm asking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay.
1: And we did the test. It, it works quite well. And the, the second one I mentioned is this, we call the secondary radiation shielding. Mm-hmm. So the, the protons in the space will hit the spacecraft, the metal will pass through, the proton is very strong, it will pass through. But once it hit this metal molecules, it will generate the electron, it will Mm -hmm. hit the electron, we call the secondary radiation, the electron will come out. And in the past, um, the spacecraft design is used the metal inside another layer of the metal to share those secondary radiation. But metal is quite heavy, yes. so we put this kind of material, uh, the polymer basically, the pure polymer, no fiber, carbon fiber inside. And you, we did a test, it's only about uh, five to ten centimeters, even that five to six centimeters. or oh, sorry, millimeters,
0: millimeters, okay,
1: of the material, very thin, and it, it can show. Um, I forgot the the percentage, but it meet the requirements. It's like for earth application, it's for the doctors in the clinic, right? You're probably in the dental clinic. When they take the x-ray, the dental assistant will go to the other room and they cover you with a metal uh, lead. lead. Something. Yes, yes. In the future, you can have uh, soft clothes with uh, a soft... Uh, the uh, plasma, yeah. uh, so it's, it's soft, uh, like a polymer stuff.
0: Interesting. Okay, yeah. so let me recap that. So if I, you're proposing a metal on the outside and the polymer with the um, with, with the monotubes on the inside, yes. And when um, a proton hits the skin, metal. the metal yeah. skin, it kicks. An electron inside, which is absorbed by the inner layer. Yeah, fascinating. Yes. Okay, so let me change gears again, and now we'll get back to what you were alluding to earlier, which is 3D printing in space. Which, um, I mean, it's exciting to think about, right? Because it's almost like the replicator on Star Trek. You know, this idea that you can produce what you need. Just you need you need the atoms. You don't need the parts, right? Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about what additive manufacturing is and how it works.
1: Yeah, additive manufacturing, it's, it's like the printing. The old days, you have inkjet printing. So additive manufacturing is kind of you, you print those materials layer by layers, uh, follow the control, the pattern, and then you build up a material bottom up. So uh, additive manufacturing, currently there are three ways. One way it's traditional, you you have those like a a polymer, ABS plastic wires, you melt it, and you you inject the molten plastic. Then they they will bond each together, and build up your solid structure. The second one we call the the laser. Uh, So you have the powder, Mm. there, your laser going through, you melt the powders and into the solids. And then you wipe out these uh, uh, powders, you lower your base a little bit, you put another layer of the powder on top of it and you follow the same pattern. Okay. So that can be, this can be used for metal, right? And the, the third one is kind of liquid. You use a liquid polymer that is cured by some uh, UV light. So you shoot the UV light and they they focus into inside the, the resin. When it's secured within the resin, they pour it out. Right. So that's a uh, three way to do the 3D printing current technology.
0: So in my mind's eye, I can picture all three of those. And they all seem to rely on the presence of gravity.
1: Yes, you're right.
0: And but they but they all have a disadvantage or no, they don't all have a disadvantage. But definitely the first kind where you're just laying down material has the disadvantage. It's very hard to make an arch, for example. Because yeah. as you as you you get to the point where they're just dropping to the floor instead of attaching to your arch. Yeah. So I can see there being advantages and disadvantages to doing 3D printing in space. What, what are the types of things we can and can't do? Or, or how, do you, how do we adjust to the disadvantages?
1: Yeah, the currently uh, the people tried, like NASA tried, and uh, the ESA also tried. It's the first technology. It's the uh, fuse and then and departed. Because you mentioned that, uh, that technology on Earth, they they have the limitation when you print it. You cannot print uh, those overhanging parts too much. You can live because of gravity. Right. In space, you don't have the gravity. Mm -hmm. So you you actually can do that. You can print in some like 90 degree angles. You can print it that way. (laughs) Uh, But the disadvantage, You also have this, for that one, because you build a material by bonding layer by layer, that gravity helped the bonds between the layers. Yeah. In the space, you don't have gravity. Mm -hmm. So your bonding stress is weak. And we did uh, experiment on earth. So we printed parts, for example, this is a pen. We printed parts along this side, we found this. And we pour this direction, they are very strong. Because my my fiber printed in this way, they continues this way, and then they bond each other by Right, use. right. This very strong. However, if I put in this way, it's very weak.
0: Like like ears of corn, like you can. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a techno. But uh, for the other two techno, there is a challenge with the gravity, for the powder. Yes, you need the gravity to keep it on the working surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In on Earth or uh, in the space, you don't have the gravity. So some people saying, "Yeah, well, I maybe can put some a metal part." So I use the magnetic field, right, to keep it on the working surface. But that's only worked for the ferron metals where you have the metal part
0: there. No so aluminum. The,
1: uh, no yeah. aluminum, right. And for the resin, same thing. If you have a container of resin, in the gravity, the resin just goes everywhere. Right,
0: right, right, yeah.
1: Huh. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Another challenge is, you know, for the 3D print, no matter which way, the heat is focused in the one point, concentrated. Yes. Right? Once you print it, the, the waste of heat is dissipated. And so to protect the machine and the parts. So on Earth, you have the air. So the air ventilation takes the heat away. Mm. In the space, if you print it within the spacecraft, then you have the air. You use the ventilation, take the heat. But as you said, in the future we want to build the spacecraft in vacuum. Ah uh, yes. Uh, you have the heat management
0: problem. And what materials do you anticipate finding in asteroids that we would be building spacecraft with? Do we have iron I mean, aluminum all those things
1: yes, yes the current people have tried uh plastic the first thing second is' the uh titanium the metal.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: yeah they tried.
0: but uh so that's what they brought into orbit to us uh, to experiment with asteroids. What are asteroids made of? Do they have the material we need to make a spacecraft?
1: So that material you can bring it from Earth.
0: Mm. Right.
1: Or you, you're mining in the space. Mm-hmm. So the easiest way you catch the dead satellite recycle.
0: Yes. I like right. that idea.
1: Yeah, and, and NASA, I think the DAPA, U.S. DAPA, they they already did that one. And the, then in the future, we actually can capture the media rod
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the, take the materials and the, somehow you, you make it a powder and then make it somehow. You process it and it can be used for 3D printing.
0: So another... Um... You, you remember I sort of led out led, led with the idea that um, the exciting thing about 3D printing is you don't need to have an inventory. you just need material that you can make into tools or components. This applies to humans too, right if if I, if I get my ear cut off in an accident in space, there's nobody around you know like I'm not going to get a donor. there's no motorcycle riders in space. So I'll, 3d printing you're, you one of the things you're looking into is the ability to print 3d, human parts
1: that's it's a long-term thing yeah (laughs) yeah this even i don't know i the short term i envision is you treat the uh astronaut like they have somehow they have accident the fire they burn the skin Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and uh, in so on earth it's very easy you put the artificial skin there and in space Right. If you have the uh, bio printing, we call it bio printing. You can actually uh, print the skin and also the implants like the bone, the tools. This is uh, it's already the technology is there. Uh, to the printing the organ, uh, it's another one. I think my colleagues and I we propose something like a cardio, cardio. Uh, VASO uh, printing to to repair your heart with 3D printing patch. But this is a long term. Sure, lesson.
0: but keep doing that. We're all gonna need these parts eventually. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, two, two final topics. Um, they are related. Uh, one is this idea of using carbon uh, fiber reinforced polymer for space structures. So we've talked a little bit about um, carbon nanotubes and and how they can be used that way. Um, but one of the really exciting things you can you can imagine using with with very very high tensile strength material is this idea of a space elevator. Can you talk a little bit about what a space elevator is?
1: Okay, the space elevator concept was originally proposed by Russian. Uh, astronaut, uh, I think, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh Tchaikovsky, Yeah, and in the eighteen ninety-five oh. or ninety-ish. Wow. Right. And uh, he said, "Okay, we can go to the space by climbing a rope." The idea is, if you put a uh, satellite in the Earth's uh, geostationary orbit. Mm -hmm. That satellite is stationary relative to the Earth's surface. Then you lower a cable, you connect it, you can combine. But at that time, it it was just a scientific fiction, fiction, right? Right. Nobody treated it seriously. And uh, that situation changed in 19, I think in 1950, Five of sixty, and the Italian uh, space agency and the NASA they work together. Launched the first tethered spacecraft mission. In that mission, that was uh, uh, tested. You have two piece connected with the tether. You rotate it, and they verify that we can generate artificial gravity field. Mm-hmm. So over there, the people think, hey, tether in space, it somehow it's not science fiction uh, anymore. So right. people look at that concept again, uh, you, you climb the tether into the space. Uh, but soon once the engineer start to look at that problem and they, they find it's physically uh, infeasible, right. because the tether has a weight Right. You have, if you use even the strongest material on earth, the steel, high strength steel, and still you won't the tether in the space won't sustain its own weight. Right, and also in order to overcome the the weight of the tether, you need a counterweight right. above the geostationary orbit, mm-hmm. so that makes sure.
0: Uh, to make sure it's intention,
1: it's intention, right? Yeah. Otherwise, the tether just collapse. Right. So, so because of that, even now, uh, there's no engineer the material it can be used to make that tether because they cannot support their own weight. Maybe in the future, we can make a rope from the theoretically from a carbon nanotube, if you can like a kilometers long carbon nanotube, mm-hmm. then that tensile strength will be sufficient for that application. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. to overcome... Yeah, go ahead. To overcome the limitation of that space elevator, because one end has to anchor yes. on Earth. Uh, there's, a, uh, I think it's a Canadian uh, scholars, they developed a concept called the floating space elevator or partial space elevator hmm. instead of one end anchor on the earth. Now they have the two satellites in floating the space, hmm. and the tether is you can be up to 20,000 kilometers long, yes. And because it's a floating and and the And the tension within the tether is only the gravity difference between the two satellites. So that reduces the tension in the tether dramatically. And according to, I'm currently uh, doing the study in in this area, and according to our calculation and uh, the existing material, it's good enough to make such space elevator.
0: So let me see if I understand that because the classic space tether or, or a classic space elevator, um, one end is fixed on the ground and the other is in geos, geostationary orbit and there's a counterweight, but the, the destination is geostationary orbit. That's why it's tracking above where yes. we are. Yeah. But the component on the ground is not in orbit, it's fixed. To the ground yes yes it wouldn't stay where if you lift it it falls because it's not in orbit right right it would have to be racing around the earth to be in to be weightless so yeah. how does the lower satellite on that tether stay in position as it goes around as both satellites go because wouldn't the orbit of this be slower than the one above
1: yes before it is, but once you connect them together, it becomes a one piece.
0: So it becomes it's not one a one
1: piece. And then there's a tension between the two satellites within the tether and the gravity will pulled them perpendicular to the earth, just really? around the earth's radio direction. And their rotation, it's not geostationary. They can depend on the orbit. They can rotate faster than the Earth's uh, rotation speed, like a satellite, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, if they are high enough, they can rotate slower than Earth's uh, rotation speed.
0: Okay. And <clears throat> so the idea is that I would launch a satellite. I would launch a rocket to low Earth orbit and and um, connect with the bottom satellite, and then I would. Have my payload take the elevator to yeah. the higher orbit? To
1: the high orbit and then launch from there.
0: But wouldn't that have the effect of slowing down the pair of satellites that comprise the elevator?
1: Uh, theoretically, it would not if you assume that's a pure vacuum. Right. right? And it's moving up, and where it is, it's moving at the stage where lower lipid depends on the ratio. So the, if your payload is very small, the, the lower down. Is, okay. But then once you shoot the satellite, uh, the payload up, and your, your, your CubeSat will move back. Uh, sorry, your space elevator will move
0: back. Well, well, but if I do it often enough, the the satellite pair, the the elevator pair will start to have a lower orbit. I'll have it, to it boost would. them back up.
1: Yeah, yeah it would. You,
0: you need to And I could I use the uh, Lorenz force. I could use, I could the power it back up. Pad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you said something interesting uh, in your work. Uh, maybe you can explain it to me. The, the effect of the Coriolis effect, mm-hmm. it's going to make the, as I ride the elevator, it's gonna cause the elevator to kind of twist, right? It's gonna cause yes. it to bow. Yes. And I think in your proposal you suggested, well, let's have two lines and one is a down elevator and the other is an up elevator. Yeah. But that only works if you have the same amount of stuff going up as you have coming down. So how, how do you how does that work?
1: Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that the uh, effect, right? It's you're going up and rotating the courier force. It's perpendicular to the, to your tether. So if you're fixed. Space elevator, so so far your tether is strong, it just full and it doesn't matter. But it's a floating space elevator. There's no anchor point. If you push too much, it will come back, going this way, this mm-hmm. way, and mm-hmm. the, then eventually it will tumbling. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the one way people doing that they use the control, so I control the moving speed of the payload. So to reduce the controls swing angle. That's one way to do it. The two other way is I let two or three payloads moving around the tether in the same direction, but at the controlled distance and the control speed, you can do that. Um, But it's not that efficient. So we propose that that is Our new proposal. So we propose a loop, two loop. So one going down, the force going that way; the other one going uh, up. It was going that way, so they cancel each other.
0: Hmm. So
1: the tether itself will bow a little bit, but the the whole structure uh, it will keep in in the vertical direction. And because it's going to loop, you don't have to stop uh, going up, then going down. You can continue doing this transportation
0: amazing Uh, that that i would love to see so this has been a a terrific conversation i i i'm down to the last question thank you so much for your time um you know you have a very interesting body of work and of course you're doing lots more uh, lots more uh research but are there areas of research outside your you know it related to space and 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 orbital technologies that you're very curious about that you think are really worth watching right now there's anything you can
1: watch uh, in the in the space. So the one thing is we are looking into uh, to the deep space exploration.
0: Mm.
1: So we want to go to the Mars. We are already going, and we want to go beyond the Mars. And uh, so there is a new technology people has developed for the deep space transportation uh, in the old day it was solar cell if mm-hmm. you have a large cell take the proton energy within the solar wind. but 10 years i think 15 years ago there's another new technology which it's called the electrical uh, solar cell e-cell mm-hmm. so it's similar like a tether you have like a um, umbrella without the the sheet, it's only just the the metal frame. And each metal frame is a a positive charge. And then around that metal wire, it forms a electrical field, then that proton, the positive charge in the solar one will be bounced back. So if you swing, if you spin that uh, that layers are uh, that wires, that you can form a, a continuous electrical field plan like a virtual cell huh. then you harvest the energy uh, in the solar wind from those positive charged part so that can provide a much lighter structure and a much higher uh, acceleration compared with the solar wind and you can go to actually go to the deep space. So this is the one thing. It's really fascinating for this.
0: Absolutely. It, it, it connects with your other work. And you, it, because much of your work is about avoiding the need to bring 98% of your weight in fuel. Yeah, right. Like so many yeah. of your projects are to do with how do we avoid needing fuel to accelerate right. a vehicle? So yeah, that is a fascinating project. It's, It'll be exciting yeah. to see. Maybe we can go to Mars, but then we can also go to Venus and Jupiter. Yeah. And...
1: yeah. This is what we call the fuel list of proportion. Yeah,
0: th- yeah. That that's terrific. Well, thank you so much, George, for being on the show. This is a great conversation.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: My guest today was Dr. George Zhu. A link to George's profile on York's website will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at Tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the unusually well-informed podcast.
1: The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the unusually well-informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation.